What is going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. Today's episode is with guest Sal Stefano from Mind Pump Media. Mind Pump Media is a crew of guys that are bringing more content than just about anybody else on this planet. I mean, it's somebody that I watch and I try to keep up to with as well because they're just crushing it. They have taken the podcasting realm or career or just thing to a completely new level to doing videos to having a full studio to be doing workshops to be traveling and doing live podcasts clothing programming so many different things coming out of this podcast they have really built it up to be such an incredible business um, it's extremely inspiring and it's an honor to have Sal on the show because Sal is just one of the most real dudes that you can talk to when it comes to fitness. He knows a lot and he's had a lot of experience. I mean, decades in the fitness industry. So not only does he have a lot of experience, but he has a lot of knowledge just from all the research he's dug into, all the people he's trained and all the things he has personally tried. So today he comes on the show. He's going to break down his story of how he got into the industry, his story about how he had a huge hiccup in his fitness journey um, where he had some autoimmune related scares that could have possibly taken him out of the game completely. Um, and he just talks about how he came over that. We talk a lot about some different myths in the industry. We talk a lot about overcoming the hype and predicting what's next. We just get into a ton of great topics that I think you guys are going to really benefit from. Before we get started, one quick thing, guys, the best way for you to help me grow the show. So if you appreciate this show, if it's helping you in any way, if you enjoy listening to it, if you listen to it at all and you want to help us out, there's one really big thing that you can do for us that is super simple. Take a screenshot of your phone right now of the podcast that you are listening to currently, which is this one. <laughs> Take a screenshot, post it on your story, tag me. Post it on your Instagram, tag me. Post it on your Facebook, tag me. Send it to a friend. Let them know what this is about. The best way to spread this message, the best way to get more people results, get more people this free information to help them better their lifestyles is really to just spread the message. Word of mouth is more powerful than anything. So the biggest thing that you can do for us to help us grow is to take a screenshot of your phone and send it to somebody, post it on social media somewhere, and please tag me, guys. I want to be tagged. I want to see who's listening. I want to see who's getting help, and I want to help you directly and start a conversation. So the best thing you can do for us. Take a screenshot, tag your boy. Let's get it spread, guys. Now, without any further ado, let's get on the show with Sal Stefano from Mind Pump Media. I want to start with uh, how you got started. I think like it, you have been in the industry literally probably twice as long as I have. So I'm interested in how you got started back then compared to how I got started now. So kind of give me the rundown of that. Yeah. So I've been professionally in fitness for 21 years now um almost 22 years so it's it's been a little while over two decades and I started as a young kid because you know I'd been working out for a long time I started at the age of 14 and just really fell in love with the transformation effects that uh, exercise provide it's it's such a great example of putting in hard work and getting a, a an objective tangible return in fact it's one of the reasons why I love when I when I would personal train people, I loved training kids because I could show them that, you know, if they sacrifice a little now, they're gonna get a return and I would be able to show them on a very in a very clear way on a weekly basis. You know, like this week you did ten push ups, next week we did twelve push ups and I could show them, look, your body has changed in a fundamental way. You are not the same person. And so I fell in love with that. I fell in love with the fact that I could change things through applying hard work and knowledge. And I wanted to share that with people. And initially, my goal was to get into physical therapy because that was really the only field that I knew of where I could use exercise and, you know, have a good living as a professional. 
but you know, 18 years old, I had just graduated high school and uh, I had to go to, you know, obviously go to college for that. And so I thought working in a gym would be a great way to kind of get myself in the door or get my foot in the door of working with people. I thought it would be a great way to gain some experience. So I went to the local 24-hour fitness and, and introduced myself to the manager. And I got hired uh, right there on the spot. And my very first day as a trainer, uh, this is back in let me this is back in 1997. And let me think, back then 24-hour fitness was it, it had just m- finished merging with or buying the Ray Wilson Family Fitness Clubs, which are these big this chain down in Southern California. So they went from like 70 clubs to 147 clubs, which had made them the largest and fastest growing fitness organization in the world at the time. Now, I think now they have something like 500 or 600 locations, but back then that was like, that was a big deal. And the club that I went to was one of the larger clubs. Uh, It was on over here in San Jose. And the the club's total personal training goal back then was, I I believe it was about 13 or $15,000 for the whole month. Which in those days was a was a lot of money for for personal training. Back then, nobody really sold training. It was like forty dollars a session or fifty dollars a session. Well, my very first day as a personal trainer. I mean, I, I loved it, right? I loved talking to people, loved fitness. So I just went crazy. And I, I, my that first day, I think I sold something like two or three thousand dollars of training. And that first month, um, I sold basically the entire club's goal on my own. And a very short period of time, they made me manager. And I was hooked, man. That was it. Like, I want to work in a gym. I want to manage gyms. I want to work in fitness, especially when I realized that working in the medical environment, like like I would have been as a physical therapist, was a different kind of vibe. You know, people would come to me because they were injured or hurt, whereas in the gym, people tend to want to come in to to better themselves before injury and, 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 you know, getting hurt starts to happen. And that was it. I was hooked. I, I managed the fitness department. Uh, and then I moved over into sales and became a general manager and grand open clubs for, for, the, for 24 Fitness for a little while. And then at the age of 21, I decided to leave the company and buy uh, my own gym. And I, I went in with a partner. And we ended up buying a sh- share of a large kind of, you know, country club type type gym down in Southern California. And did that for a little while, and then left that and opened up my own wellness studio. So I've been doing this for a little for a little while. It, it, the business of fitness is is a very interesting one, uh, but really, it's my my passion is really starts off with people, and then fitness is just kind of, I guess, my second passion or maybe my favorite hobby. And so I get to combine the two uh, by by you know doing working in the fitness industry. One thing I, I yeah, one thing I would love to go into too is like taking things to the extreme because as you just mentioned, like everything you just talked about are such positive things, and that's why it kept leading down a good path. But I think everything can be taken too far, and we could, I mean, we can go into sales and how getting too in depth in your business can kind of destroy the balance in your life. But also, getting too into fitness can actually create a poor relationship with health and training and different things in your life too. And I think you've had a um, a pretty significant revelation or story behind this with your gut health and bodybuilding and all these different things, at least from what I've heard when I listened to you. So at what point did you start taking things maybe a little too far and started realizing like what health was actually about versus just bodybuilding and strength and muscle? Well, and you know, a lot of what motivated me personally with fitness when I first started was just insecurities. I was a skinny kid growing up, um, 
wanted to build more muscle. And so my main motivation for, for training was to, to try to change that, to try to feel more secure with myself. Um, you know, the, the problem, and that's okay, and that's how a lot of people get started, and, and a lot of people are motivated through fitness. The problem with that is when you're seeking security with yourself, when you're seeking um, aesthetics, when you want to change how you look because you think that's going to make you happy, you, you end up finding that you, you never, there's never, you never sol- solve that problem. It, it, it becomes a problem in and of itself. And so my training become, became more and more extreme. The way I supplemented became more and more extreme. The way I ate became more and more extreme. And it was, it wasn't about health. It wasn't about, uh, you know, wellness. It was always about how I looked. And, uh, that drove me to make decisions that weren't necessarily the best for myself. And my body rebelled uh, right around the age of 30. I feel like I got an autoimmune disorder with my gut. I actually thought I had Crohn's disease at one point and I was losing tons of weight, lost about maybe almost 15 pounds, couldn't hold weight on no matter what I ate. You know, I, I thought I was eating healthy. I was eating chicken and oatmeal and whole grains and all that stuff. And it was just, it, it was terrible. It wasn't, it wasn't, I wasn't feeling good. And so I had to take a completely different approach. And luckily at the time I worked with two, I had a wellness facility at this time and I worked with two wellness experts who looked at fitness and nutrition from a different standpoint. I mean, they didn't look at it from the fat loss, you know, get ripped, get muscular standpoint, but more from a health and wellness standpoint. And they both helped me out. You know, at this point I was like, look, I, I don't even care about getting stronger and building muscle because I can't keep weight on because I'm just unhealthy. I need to figure this out. And so I took a completely different approach and I had to let go of those things and and approach it from a health standpoint. And the, the irony of all this is as I started focusing primarily on my health, of course, my health started to improve. The irony was that my body started to reflect good health and I actually started to look better than I had previously when I would just focus on the aesthetics or just focus on how I looked. And that's when I kind of had a revelation. And, you know, if you really break it down and you think about why we like, you know, fit fitness, why we like the way fitness looks, you know, when you're fit and relatively lean, that, that's really a representation of health. Evolutionarily speaking, this is the reason why we're attracted to strength and a hip to waist ratio or a shoulder to waist ratio that's a particular number is because those reflect good health which reflects you know the ability to pass on healthy genes and the problem with that is we've taken that knowledge and we've kind of perverted it and made it extreme with you know drug use and plastic surgery and all that other stuff when in reality if if you if you just focus on being healthy and balanced you're going to get a great deal of those aesthetics your body is going to reflect what you, you know, your, your, your true health. And on the flip, if you just focus on how you look at, at, at some point, you're going to lose your health and then you're going to lose how you look. And that's kind of the, the irony of the whole thing. And that's, you know, the direction of the fitness industry tends to be driven by that aesthetics. You know, it's all about how you look. And I think this is why the fitness industry hasn't been able to provide real answers for a lot of the problems that we have in, in Western societies, a lot of the health problems that we have. It should be it should be able to provide the answers. I mean, if you look at some of the problems that we have in 
Western societies like uh, you know obesity, diabetes, autoimmune diseases. Uh, fitness is literally the solution if it's applied properly. The problem is is it's it's driven by you know people who just want to change how they look. They really don't care about the other stuff. It's uh, it, it pushes um, the aesthetic. It pushes the quick results, the fast results, to take the pill, 30 days, lose weight, beat yourself up, hate yourself because you're you're fat or because you don't look good or whatever, and it, and it ends up becoming a part of the problem. And I had to you know I, I was blessed to have health problems at 30 because it, it forced me to take a look at it from a different perspective. I'm not sure if I would have had I not been forced with that decision, to be quite honest. Uh, but uh, of course, at the time, uh, you, if you had asked me, I would have said, this is not a blessing. This is an absolute curse. But looking back, I can see how it totally was. Well, I think it, it, it obviously paved the path for what you ended up doing today. So one thing I, I need you to go over is how can trainers be, there's a lot of coaches and trainers that listen to this. How can they be patient? Because I think with media and money and marketing and all these things that are driving the fitness industry towards convenience and fast results and sexiness and stuff like that. Yet you guys took this approach of like, we're going to give a no bullshit approach and just wait, right? And just wait for it to grow and wait for it to be successful because you know it was the right thing to do, even though it was going to take you possibly twice as long, which I would say in the grand scheme of things, I think your guys' movement has grown pretty quick if you if you look at it like a large scale. Um, what advice do you have for trainers to just like listen to their gut and actually go down that right path? Well, you can. there's two ways you can go if you're a trainer. You can either be an order taker, which is what a lot of trainers are. So someone comes in and says, uh, I want to lose 30 pounds and I want to do it in, in three months. And the trainer says, okay, you know, I'm an order taker. So here's your prescription. Now, that's not hard to do. Okay. That's not hard. to. That's actually quite easy. Now, whether or not the client actually adheres to what you say, that's a different story. But it's quite simple if you want someone to lose 30 pounds in a 90-day period, right? You restrict their calories, increase their activity, you know, bing, bang, boom there's your, you, you get your results. On the other side, there's trainers who are guides, uh, who are, you know, leaders, who are teachers, who are mavens. And your job, if that's what you want to be, if you truly, truly want to help that individual and you know the right answers, and most trainers do, most trainers do know that there's a right way to do things and a fast way to do things. If you, you want to do the right way and you really want to help this person in a, in a fundamental way, you have to learn how to communicate your ideas very well. You have to learn to become a great salesperson because if you don't sell your ideas well, if you can't communicate why you're doing things a particular way, then you're not going to make uh, a huge impact on that individual. And so that's your job. That is really your job as a client, so as a, as a trainer. So when a client comes to me and says, you know, I want to, I want these results right away. I'm going to say no problem. We can definitely achieve that. And there is a way to do that in a very, in a fast way, but there's also a way to do it in the right way. Let me explain the difference between the two. If we do this the fast way, uh, we can, we're going to affect your metabolism in a way. It's going to get it to slow down. It's going to make it much harder to maintain a particular level of fitness. We're going to increase your risk of injury. We may affect your hormones negatively. Um, and you'll be right back where you started in a relatively short period of time. And I know this because I've trained hundreds of people and I know how the human body works. Now, if we do this the right way, here's what's going to happen. Here's what, here's what we're going to do. Step one, I'm going to focus on, and I'm just using, of course, this is different from person to person, but I may say step one, we're going to focus on 
creating better recruitment patterns. Now, why is that important? Well, if I can create better recruitment patterns in you, you're going to move better, which is going to make exercise much more effective. Then we're going to focus on building strength. Now, why is that important? Look, I know you don't want to bench press a lot of weight and you're not trying to deadlift you know, twice your body weight or anything like that. However, if we do aim for more strength, that does tell your metabolism to speed up. Now, that's important because you want to be able to eat more and remain leaner. And most people would agree that that's a, that's, that makes a lot of sense. So we're going to focus on building your strength because we're going to get your metabolism to move up faster. And as that happens, the goal is to apply the least amount of work for the most amount of results. Because I think in the long term, when I've trained clients in the past, if I can get them in phenomenal health and shape working out two or three days a week, they're much more likely to be consistent long term than if it requires us to work out six days a week. And most people would agree that that probably makes sense for them. And I would walk them through that process and I'd tell them, look, I like to train people the right way. I like to get people results that stay forever. And I like to get people healthy because it feels better to be that way. And you got to sell these things to your client all along the way. You need to explain the benefits of what you're doing and, and, and get them to understand the benefits and to agree with the benefits. And really, it has to do with uh, effective communication. A large part of being an effective trainer is the psychological component behind all of it. Uh, another mistake that trainers tend to make is they throw everything but the kitchen sink at a client uh, on day one. You know what I mean? Like a client comes yeah. in, they have a goal, and it's like, here's your meal plan, here's your cardio, here's your resistance training, don't eat this, eat that. And it's like, you know, you're trying to change. Consider this. When you're training someone or working with a client, you are trying to change behaviors. Really is what you're trying to do, okay? Because, you know, even if the client hires you for three days a week, that's three hours out of their entire week that they'll be seeing you. There's a lot more hours in the day or a lot more hours in the week than just three hours. Um, and changing behaviors is what's going to create long-term uh, progress or long-term results. If I can get somebody to eat a particular way because they want to eat a particular way, in the truest sense, then we're not going to have this yo-yo diet problem. If I can get this person to enjoy exercise for the sake of, of the, of, of, an, of the enjoyment of the exercise. In other words, they like to go to the gym because they just enjoy working out. I'm not going to have to sit here and, and hammer and motivate the hell out of them to get them to show up at the gym. And I know if I'm not around, they're still going to want to work out. You know what I mean? So it's, it's about those behavior changes. And behavior changes happen in two different ways. In, 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 there's two, really, two fundamental ways that humans make uh, big changes. One is the slow step-by-step approach and that's the most common one right like you know if I'm trying to change my diet let's say I eat the standard American you know crappy diet well I'm not going to go from eating you know lots of processed foods and sugar and no vegetables to eating a perfect diet overnight it's probably going to be a step-by-step approach so I may start off with you know one serving of vegetables a day and then that's going to happen for a while and I'm going to get used to that and then I'm going to start finding benefit in that and maybe start enjoying that. And then the second thing may be, may be to reduce my processed food consumption by half. And then that's going to take a while. And then it may be increasing my water take. And then that's going to take a while. And, and so it's a, it's kind of a slow step-by-step approach. The second way people, humans tend to change behaviors is through these fundamental shifts 
uh, or these like epiphanies that we'll have. And those are rare. Those are quite rare. Epiphanies typically will happen when there's a major change in your life. Like sometimes you'll see a client who has been eating shitty for their whole life and then they get a heart attack and almost die. And now it's like, boom, big change. I'm going to change my life. That's it. I'm going to change my diet. Sometimes that doesn't even work. But if you do see those big epiphanies, it's usually like that. As a trainer, you're not going to create an epiphany with your client. What, that's just not going to happen. What's gonna, what you are going to do is you're going to – you can influence them on a slow, step-by-step process. And so rather than you know giving them a ton of information all at once, try to communicate one small thing to them that you know will be challenging but you know that they – can commit to something that they themselves can agree that they can commit to. So this may be a conversation you have with them and it's going to be different from person to person. I remember one client years ago, we were talking about changing her diet and she literally had the worst diet I'd ever seen in my entire life. She, everything she ate came out of a box. Um, she didn't drink water, literally did not have water ever. She would drink, uh, she drank Coke, diet Coke, and that was it. That's how she got all of her hydration. So I knew I had to start, you know, real low. So, you know, we talked about her nutrition. The first thing I said was, okay, you know, let's talk about something that you can do now that you can know you can realistically do consistently, but that's going to give you a little bit of a challenge. So at least there's some meaning behind it. And so we started off with, can you eliminate your soda uh, consumption? And she's like, no, I can't do that. I said, okay. Can you drink a full glass of water, at least one every single day? And she said, well, maybe not. I hate water. It makes me feel nauseous, which was kind of weird. So I said, okay, can you, uh, can you add a serving of vegetables? No. And we went down the list. Eventually, it turned into, can you read one page from this health nutrition book that I'm going to recommend every single day? And she said, yes, I can commit to that. And that's literally where we started. You know what I mean? But over the course of four years, we fundamentally changed her nutrition. And, you know, it's 10 years later now, and I still keep in contact with her. And she eats healthy, but it was a very slow process. And that's really the approach that is the most successful. It's not going to happen overnight. And if you do make these big changes overnight where the client feels super motivated or whatever, the odds that that's going to stick are quite low. And, and trainers have... Good trainers have good success with clients when clients train with them. But most trainers, even the good ones, have terrible success if the client no longer trains with them. And my gauge for success was they should be successful with me and they should be successful when they're not with me. I want to be the last trainer they ever work with. I want to be the trainer that makes, that influences them enough to make these fundamental changes to where, you know, they're always going to be doing this. They're always going to make these changes in their life. And what it looked like, you know, for me was, you know, I'd start training a client three days a week. We'd make little changes, bigger changes, bigger changes. And then I'd start training them two days a week and then once a week. And then I'd train them once every other week. Then I'd train them once a month and then I would stop training them. And this was over the course of years and years. But these people really made long, long-term uh, changes. And, you know, on the flip side, as a, as a, as a business person, it made me very successful as a personal trainer because I'd have trainers that would stay with me for 12 and 15 years, you know, but they'd come see me, let's say once a month uh, or some even once every other month. I had clients that would drive, you know, three and a half hours to meet with me 
because they would move, but they'd want to come see me, you know, the, on their once a month type of routine, but they would stay consistent. And, uh, you know, that's kind of, I think, how we should gauge our success. How effective of, of changes did those clients make in their lives from a behavioral standpoint? And I think a, a big a big piece of what you were just saying too is like education to the client is so huge because a lot of trainers, I feel like they approach things with a, I want to keep this client working with me so I can make money. Like, and that's their whole mindset. But if you come into the situation as I'm going to teach this client how to not even need me anymore, I think you're going to be much more successful in the long term. And I think your client is going to be much more successful. But a big part of that comes with self-awareness. And I find you, Sal, as a very, very self-aware person, um, just through like listening to your content, seeing your content, and then obviously your story. So what are some things that you put forward to practice self-awareness or deliver self-awareness towards your clients? Well, so it's funny. First, I want to address the first thing you said about trainers, you know, wanting to always train their clients. Here's the deal. And here's, uh, here's the problem. I think people feel like sometimes if they really deliver long lasting change to their clients, that their clients will, will leave and no longer leave them. And yes, I get that. But the, but the the and I get where, why someone may think that the the funny thing is, if you really do a good job, you'll have clients for much longer than if you just beat the crap out of them and try and give them the fast results. It's the truth. The average trainer in the industry has a client for three to six months. Good trainers may keep them for a year. My average clients stay with me for over ten years. So, so I had clients for very very long uh, periods of time, and I know my co-hosts can can echo that because they also had the same thing. So. If you really want to be successful as a trainer, your goal is to make those fundamental or help your client make those fundamental changes uh, within themselves. Now, as far as self-awareness is concerned, one of the best things I do now is podcast, just being quite honest. There's nothing quite like listening to your voice and hearing how you talk and communicate and trying and hearing it and, and being objective about it. There's really nothing like it at all. But besides that, I try to surround myself by people that I trust uh, and that I respect. And then when they criticize me, I rather than get defensive, I, you know, because you, initially your ego wants to get defensive, right? If somebody tells you, hey, you're acting like an asshole or you sound narcissistic or you're being defensive or whatever, your ego wants to defend and you want to defend your, your position. But instead of doing that, you know, you could feel that. There's nothing wrong with feeling that. But instead of immediately jumping and in, in defending and in, in, in fighting to maintain your status quo, take what they say and imagine that they're being honest and that they're right. Now, you know, worst case scenario or best case scenario, I guess, they are right, in which case you can make some changes and you become a better person. Or maybe they're wrong, but you'll discover that if you consider what they're saying may be true. Now, if you automatically assume that these people that you surround yourself with that you trust that are smart are all wrong and you're being defensive, you'll never get to that point. So it's important if somebody says, hey, you know, you were acting like an asshole, pause for a second and, and assume that they're right and say, okay, I was acting like an asshole. Let me think about it from that perspective and let me see if, if, there's, if there's truth in this. And you'll be surprised to find that, you know, many times people are right. Many times you are, there are things you can improve upon and rather than being afraid of that, make friends with it because, you know, here's the deal. Make friends with it because it means you can now be a better person. 
you no longer are wrong or you no longer are behaving in a way that was not as effective or beneficial as it can be now rather than feeling like you've been attacked or defensive. So I, I think that's probably the best advice I could give because, you know, I think most people have pe- some people around them at least that they can truly, truly trust. And if you don't, start there. If you don't, make sure you surround yourself with people who really want you to succeed and really want the best for you because those are the people you can trust. Once you have a couple of those people around you, then uh, create a space where they feel comfortable that they can criticize you. Take it for truth or at least assume that, they are, that they're trying to be honest um, and then take it from there and watch how fast your growth and change accelerates. It's actually uh, it's quite remarkable. So I think, dude, a part, a big part of what you just said too is is being open minded. Because if you have good friends around you that are gonna be able to deliver good advice, critiques, feedback, all these things, and you can't accept it, it's gonna be hard. But part of that is not being dogmatic, and and this is something I really wanted to touch on with you guys or with you today, is about how undogmatic you guys actually are. And and one of the funniest things I saw lately, or that came to mind, you guys just released a program called Split, and for the longest time, you guys preach against split programs body part splits and then you come out with one and i know a lot of people might have gave you flack for it but my first thing was like these guys understand that there's never one good approach it's there's so many ways to do it and there's so many ways that you can optimize all these different ways so can you touch on not being a dogmatic coach and why you guys decided to do that oh yeah so it it comes from uh it comes from experience so you can have a lot of knowledge where you know things, you know ideas, you know facts, you know science, you understand literature and, you know, you understand what happens in studies and all that stuff. But then, uh, but that's not enough. You also need to have experience in its application because when you combine experience with knowledge, then you get wisdom. And when you train thousands of people over two decades, you start to realize that it's not one size fits all. And there's a lot of variables, a lot of variables. And so you, 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 you have to become, you have to learn to become open-minded. I mean, I had clients who, whose health flourished on a vegan diet. And I had other clients whose health flourished on a, a, a high meat and take paleo style diet. I mean, two completely different diets, but I could not argue with the, what I would, what was right in front of me, which was a client whose health was uh, it progressing a client who was thriving, whose performance was good in the gym. So you start to learn that, you know, being dogmatic is, uh, it's probably not going to benefit you. Now there are general truths in fitness, but again, it, it the application and in, in wisdom tells us that everybody, you know, people can look, everybody has their own personal experience. I mean, from a, from a physiological standpoint, your immune system is a fingerprint. So how you react to food, can be very, very individual. But then you have personal experiences, how you grew up, the foods you enjoy to eat, how you celebrate uh, things, how you, uh, you know, how you grieve when, when hard times come. Uh, foods that make you feel a particular way and uh, can be attached to all of those different things and more. Um, and then, of course, you know, here's the deal. If you have a belief system, the only and you really believe in it, right? Let's say you're, you know, you, you have a belief system in a particular style of training, and you and you, it's something you really strongly identify with. You can't, you can't possibly know that it is the best way to do things unless you have entertained the opposite ideas. 
you can't you can't possibly know your your position unless you know the opposite position just as well. And so something that I like to practice is if I have an idea or a way of thinking is I will entertain the opposite and I will seek out people who can argue and explain the opposite position very, very effectively. And I'll entertain those ideas and I'll come out with better information, either strengthening my, my ideas or changing my ideas. Either way, I'm going to come out better off rather than being so dogmatic that uh, you know, all I'm going to do is seek to defend myself. You know, if you're super, I mean, I have, I've had, uh, you know, people who follow carnivore diets on my podcast and, you know, there sometimes there's so people like that can be so dogmatic against plants and they can find all kinds of reasons to justify what they're saying. But I, I sometimes will see holes in what they're saying because they're not able to be open-minded to understand that, look, some people do better eating a different way and you should entertain that and try to figure out why they may be feeling that way. And you may find that you're, that there's more to this than you, than you realize, or you're going to come out of it and, and say to yourself, wow, I was right all along, but you, you, you can't get to that place unless you entertain those opposing uh, views. And it does make you a more effective coach and effective communicator. Cause then you can sit down with a client, empathize and come from a lot of different directions and come up with solutions or help your client come up with solutions. A big part of that too, I think is going to be just staying ahead of the curve, right? If you're not, if you're not taking action on studying, on looking at new research and on doing these all other things, you won't understand all these different point of views. So when somebody does come on your show, for example, and is very one-sided with something, you're not going to know any other approach unless you're looking at all these other things. And that's something, again, I wanted to talk to you about and you kind of led me right into is how you guys stay so ahead of the curve, specifically you, because sometimes it cracks me up, man. Like I, I listened to a podcast of yours, like this had to have been years ago where you guys were talking about protein being added into just everyday things. And I actually thought it was funny. I was like, no, nah, I don't think that's going to happen. And then literally within like six months, Snickers bars comes out with like a protein bar and shake. And then there was the protein fasting thing that you came out with. And that was really out there to me when you first said it, because you said it a while ago. And now I'm talking to these other guys and there's other big name strength coaches in the industry doing that exact same thing. And lo and behold, I did it and I feel really good doing it. So how do you stay so ahead of the curve? And how do you know that what you're, what you are predicting is really going to happen every time? Like you say things with such conviction. It's crazy. I, you know, again, just staying open-minded, looking at the literature and, and, uh, and considering all my experience training people all play a factor, but also the industry is pretty predictable. I mean, to be quite honest, I've been doing this for a long time, right? So and I know it from a, a sales perspective as well. So if I see, if I see a, a few studies, for example, that come out that say, you know, that maybe make the mainstream or at least make the mainstream in fitness and say something like, you know, fasting has been shown to speed up cell, you know, autophagy and stimulate stem cells and in lower inflammation. And then another, another study comes out and says, fasting, you know, helps people control their blood sugar and increases insulin sensitivity then I know, okay, it's a matter of time before the fitness industry grabs onto this and figures out a way to sell it. And so it's just, it's just predictable. It's very, very predictable. And so we saw that with keto. I knew protein because the protein was being pushed so much. You had paleo coming out and protein satiating and protein. If you increase your protein intake, uh, you know, it, it, it's got more of a thermic effect. So you might burn more calories. And I said, okay, it's a matter of time before 
food manufacturers. Because now we're being told that protein is the magic macronutrient and you can't have too little of it and, and you'll never get fat from it. And so I said, okay, they're going to start selling protein. But I also looked at it for, you know, I also looked, th- looked at things from an evolutionary standpoint. And the reality is we probably thrive in environments that mimic the environments that we evolved in, or at least our bodies evolved to thrive in ways that we've lived in for most of human civilization. So from that standpoint, you know, what was life like, you know, thousands of, for thousands and thousands of years for humans, like most of the time we've been on earth? Well, we probably got lots of sunlight. So I can say pretty with lots of confidence that sunlight or lots of sunlight is probably good for us and that the the you know the the message we've been getting now for a while that sunlight gives you skin cancer put sunscreen on your body stay out of the sun probably too extreme because humans were out in the sun all the time right and of course that varies from person to person but i can say that with pretty good confidence i'm pretty sure humans didn't live stay in caves all the time pretty sure they were outside most of the time trying to find food and all that stuff, right? So that's that's a good example. Well, what about food? Let's talk about food for a second. Did people eat every day? No. Refrigerators didn't exist for most of human civilization. I mean, humans are apex predators and we're successful predator, you know, in terms of our hunting, but you know, hunting was very dangerous, required a lot of energy, and uh because we couldn't refrigerate food, we probably ate until we were stuffed and then you know, rested, digested, and then tried to find another hunt. I'm pretty sure we weren't successful every day. So it makes sense that humans, you know, probably benefit from not having food or proteins or fats or or carbohydrates, especially for, you know, certain periods of time. Um, Let's look at activity levels. You know, humans probably were active most of the time. And in, in between that activity, there were probably bouts of extreme activity. Intensity was probably applied sporadically it's you know like when we would make the kill or something like that right or defend ourselves or 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 fight each other so you know the approach to exercise can kind of you know come from that perspective so you start to look at things that way and you and you can come up with ideas and i can also see the extremes uh, of the fitness industry and where you know the the, or just industries in general where if something is good then more is better tends to be our approach but that's hardly ever the case in fact i can't think of a case where that's always where that that's ever the case like even water right like water is good for you drink too much of it and you drown right food yeah. we need food eat too much of it and you die sleep sleep is good for you have too much of it and you're probably going to make yourself ill stress stress causes the body to adapt and we require it too much of it's bad for you too little of it is also bad for you so if you start looking at things for that from that perspective you can start to make kind of predictions on where things uh you know will start to go i guess does does any of it come from like you you're a big fan of old school bodybuilding and and dude i gotta know where you get all these magazines and shit because i'm super interested in being able to read those things but do do you see these things kind of cycle in time and you because you were you're reading stuff from the 80s and sometimes i even hear even earlier 70s 60s 50s of like really old bodybuilding and muscle magazines and stuff do you see things kind of coming up again or you can kind of predict things because it's been so often since it was last released into the fitness industry? Oh yeah. Shit gets cycled all the time. You know, one of my favorite things that I see that will like clockwork 
will be sold on TV once every year or maybe once every other year are these stupid ab stim you know machines that you buy it's like a belt or something you put it on your abs and you plug it in and it you know it sends a current to your abs and makes them flex and so it's like work out your abs while you're at your desk they've had those machines for probably 50 years and every year it's it comes out in a different form to try and, and they sell it in the same way you don't need to work out put it on your abs and it, you know Bruce Lee used those machines uh you know in, as part of his training i think he even tried to sell some of them um, and so that was back in the in the '60s, you know. Uh, so, yeah, and, you know, and there's a lot of there's a lot of wisdom that we tend to, you you know, wisdom is important. It's important to to pay attention to old wisdom. So you know, and, and the reason why I'm saying this is sometimes we disregard it because it's not backed up by science. And science is fantastic. Don't get me wrong. The scientific method transformed human civilization. It's what uh, it's part of the the reason why Western civilizations have been so successful um, is that whole scientific method where you, you know, you, you have a hypothesis, you test it, you look objective results, and then you have your, you know, you figure out, you know, why, if things work or if they don't work. But wisdom comes from, you know, hundreds or thousands of years of, of anecdote. And anecdote, you know, when you look at one person or 10 people or 100 people, you can't really listen to anecdote because it's, it's super subjective. But if you look at anecdote over 100, 200, 300 years or thousands of years, then you can start paying attention. So I'll give you an example, right? It was wisdom said that if your child has a cough, you give them honey. Okay, we were, you know, my mom did this for me. My grandparents did it and, and so on. Honey's been used for a long time to help with cough suppression. Well, when I was a kid, my mom would give me honey when I had a cough and she would tell the doctor and the doctor would say, no, that's an old wives tale. You know, there, there's no evidence to support that honey helps. Well, lo and behold, I don't know, 10, 15 years you know, ago or 10 years ago, studies come out showing that there is a compound in honey that does affect the part of the brain that causes that reflex to cough and it kind of suppresses it. So it does help with coughing. But, you know, people have known this for hundreds of years. So with muscle building or bodybuilding, now that hasn't been around for a long time, but people have been training for strength for over a hundred years, you know, for uh, definitely for uh, at least a hundred years, but a little over a hundred years, you know, in the, in the 19th century, you had, you had, you know, strong men who would uh, travel with circuses and would perform feats of strength and they would compete with each other at large events and would draw large crowds. And, you know, they would do things that worked for them and they would pass on information to each other. And there were a few books that were written uh, during that time. And then you had the, you know, the turn of the 20th century you had, you know, more organization around how they how they trained and how they ate. Um, and there were consistencies in what they did. And you saw that in muscle building. And then, of course, you saw a big shift when anabolic steroids became common. And that's just because anabolic steroids just changed the way the body responded. So you saw higher prevalence of body part splits and, you know, m- frequent meal eating because these guys were starting to consume lots of food and they had, you know, because they were anabolically enhanced and all that stuff. But when you looked at the wisdom from the guys, especially before anabolic steroids, there's some pretty cool stuff that you can learn from them. For example, you know, old time strongmen, when they would add the diet that they would advocate for, for strength was a high fat, high cholesterol intake diet. In fact, one, one guy that I like to read who has got some interesting uh, wisdom and information, which is now backed by some science 
is uh, Vince Garanda. Vince Garanda was like this. He was like the scientist bodybuilder back in the day, and he opened up some of the first gyms uh, way back when, when you know, when gyms were gymnasiums. You know, with, with gymnastic stuff. He was the one one the fir- one of the first gyms to open that had like machines and would focus on training particular body parts and stuff. And he advocated for this really high cholesterol diet for muscle building. Well, there's a lot of wisdom in that. There's actually studies that show that when you dramatically increase your dietary cholesterol intake, testosterone levels increase and strength and recovery increase. There's a there's a, f- a fantastic study that was done on older people where they took their t- their dietary cholesterol and had them eat something like 800 milligrams or 1,000 milligrams of cholesterol a day. And, uh, I mean, across the board, strength increases went up. So there's a lot of old wisdom that I like to read. And my favorite parts of the old wisdom is when it goes counter to what modern – you know, practices say. I love that. I love saying eat a high cholesterol diet to get stronger because people have been hearing for so long that cholesterol, dietary cholesterol is bad for you. So I'll bring that up because it shocks people and it's the opposite of what they heard. And it gets people to kind of, you know, open their ears a little bit and go, what the fuck's this guy talking about? More cholesterol. I thought cholesterol is bad for you. So I like to do that because it kind of makes a little bit of an impact. But there's a lot of cool stuff in, in some of that old wisdom. So, you know, if you're interested in reading or learning about fitness, go back. There's this website that I uh, that I used to go to, go on. I think it's called oldtimestrongman.com. I think it is, and you can go on this website and buy books that were written by some of these old old timers. And these books were fabulous, man. There's like some of them were on how to build a manly grip, or you know how to lift your body weight over your head, or you know weird stuff like that. But the, but you can read through them and you'll find some pretty interesting information that you may not be familiar with. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check that out. I I think a big part of that too is like the whole cholesterol thing, for example, who funded the study to show that it was bad and and people forget to look at that stuff. And and you guys are really good at pointing that out. But I would say, I mean, shit, 50% of studies are probably funded by supplement companies or the sugar industry or whatever it may be. And then when somebody wants to come out with the right information and do a study proving that cholesterol is probably good for you, how long does it take for that to get done, reviewed, and then actually published, right? So then it's years go by before like the public actually knows that cholesterol is okay. Well, when you look at arteries that are clogged and you take out the stuff that's clogged them, it is made up of fatty cholesterol you know, type deposits. And so right. there's that, right? So they take that and they're like, oh, okay. That must be part of the problem. And then they did studies on animals where they would increase their cholesterol intake and then they develop all these problems. The problem with that is that humans are not the same as like rabbits, for example, because there was some studies that they did, they did with rabbits where they'd stuff them full of cholesterol and then they'd get sick. Our bodies regulate our blood cholesterol pretty damn well. In fact, today the FDA now says that dietary cholesterol is no longer a nutrient of concern. Because your liver can regulate it pretty well. It produces more or less depending on your intake. So there's that. The other thing, too, is you got to look at things and say from yourself to, to yourself, does this make sense? Does this actually make sense? So an example, I use the, the sunlight one, right? They'll say stay out of the sun because it gives you skin cancer. Does that really make sense? Like I, I understand you don't want to get sunburn because that's damage and that's painful and you can blister. And that probably will cause problems, just like any kind of damage. But is really staying out of sun beneficial when humans literally evolved to be in the sun most of the time it doesn't make any sense whatsoever and we require sunlight to synthesize an important you know hormone like vitamin like vitamin d 
Does that really make sense? Does it make sense that we need to eat a very, very low saturated fat, low dietary cholesterol diet when humans have been apex predators for a long time? And I'm pretty sure when we killed an animal, we didn't eat the lean, just the lean parts. I'm pretty sure we eat everything, including the organs, including the liver and the kidneys, which are very high in cholesterol. Like a chicken liver has got something like, I don't know, the, the one small chicken liver has got as much cholesterol as like seven eggs or something like that. It's like insane. It's like, yeah. did humans like avoid those parts? No. We know that they've, they've actually valued all of those parts of the animals. So it just doesn't, didn't make any sense. But back to the cholesterol, here's what tends to happen is we'll have a bad study. Government will start to make a policy about it, which is what happened with, you know, the, the, the fat uh, hypothesis and cholesterol hypothesis. It was based on some terrible science done by, I believe Ansel Keys is his name, where he took a bunch of countries. He actually took, I think, nine or ten countries and tried to find a correlation between fat intake and heart disease. And found that set of seven of those countries made that correlation, but there were two or three of them that were completely the opposite. And so what he did is he took those two or three countries out of the study and just focused on the seven and created what, what's called the seven country study or the seven nation study, which if anybody, anybody in science will tell you, you can't take out data just because it doesn't fit your hypothesis, which is exactly what he did. So the government then made it policy started advocating for low fat, low fat. Of course, the subsidized industries of corn and wheat and soy loved that and, and partnered with, you know, the government and, and the FDA and started putting out low fat, you know, high sugar foods. They made a killing. And then of course, we came out with this whole cholesterol hypothesis. Well, the, the pharma industry created statin drugs, which for sure will lower your cholesterol. Like guaranteed, you take a statin, it'll lower your cholesterol. Well, when we have a medication that has that strong of an effect on one metric, we're going to make that metric the most important. So just what happens, like you go to the doctor and they look at all of your lipid profile. They look at all your metrics. The one that they're going to focus on is the cholesterol because they know they can fix it with a pill or at least fix the number, I should say, with a pill. And so it's like, oh, cool. Take a pill. Boom. Cholesterol's lower. My job is done. Not so, not so fast. Doesn't quite work that way. Because if your cholesterol levels are all over the place, it's more. what's more important is why that's happening, not the cholesterol number itself. Unless your cholesterol is absurdly high and you have some, you know, one of those polymorphisms where it's just really off the charts. Really, uh, elevated cholesterol level sometimes, many times means your, your body's using it as an antioxidant because you've got too much inflammation or something like that. There's also studies that show that higher cholesterol is correlated to longevity and lower risk of, of infection. So it's not as, as clear-cut as they say. But yeah, they'll, they'll latch onto it, especially if there's a lot of money to be made with it. And then that's what we end up taking for truth. And uh, you just got to dive and dig a little bit deeper. What are some uh, studies that you've dug into recently that kind of uh, give you a paradigm-shattering moment? I know you guys have mentioned on the podcast, one being like intermittent fasting, for example, which was a huge one for me. I, I think the first time I fasted was like five or six years ago, doing just like a warrior-style fast daily, um, any, anywhere between 16 to 20 hours. And that was huge because before that, I thought I had to eat six meals a day. So that was a big shattering moment for me. What recently have you read or, or seen literature on that has kind of shocked you or, or made you think differently? 
You know, in terms of fitness and nutrition, I'm trying to think right now. Well, I mean, relatively recently, it wasn't super recent, but maybe about a year and a half ago, um, I started looking at the the, the science behind uh, or the studies on these uh, continual glucose monitors, and these are these are devices you can wear that will measure your your glucose and insulin response in real time. So you can see if I eat something, how I react to that particular food. Well, what was fascinating about this is just how individual people are. Some people would get a higher, you know, insulin response or higher higher glucose spike from like an avocado than they would from like, uh, you know, a cookie, which you would never expect, right? You would never expect like for sure sugar will cause a higher glucose response or insulin response than something like an avocado, which is mainly fat. But that would happen sometimes in some people. Not often, not common, but in some people that would happen. Now, that was mind-blowing, but when you dig a little deeper, it starts to make sense if you consider that people develop food intolerances. Now, food intolerance is really just an immune response to food, not that different from a food allergy. I mean, it's different in the sense that you're not going to get anaphylactic shock and you're not going to have this crazy immune re- reaction, but it's a food intolerance is more of a low-level immune reaction. And it can look like, you know, indigestion, heartburn, you know, constipation, diarrhea. It can be a skin issue. It could just be brain fog or just kind of feeling crummy. So they're harder to identify. But when you have an immune reaction, that's a stress response in the body. It raises cortisol. And one of the things that cortisol does is it tells the liver to dump a bunch of glycogen because your liver stores most of your glycogen, right? Most of the glycogen in your body is stored in your liver. And when you're under a lot of stress, your body dumps glycogen to give you energy ready and available in case you got to run or in case you got to fight. You know what I'm saying? So if you eat a food that causes an immune reaction, you're going to get a, a spike in glucose. And that can happen with foods that you normally wouldn't even consider that could possibly happen with. That was pretty mind-blowing for me to see that. So, so you know, the food intolerances, avoiding foods you're intolerant to or finding those out very, very, very important if you want to, even if you just want to burn body fat and build muscle because you don't want this cortisol spiking all the time or whatever when it, when it shouldn't be, right? Just like you're trying to control blood sugar with, with you know, lower carbohydrates or better carbohydrates, I should say. You also want to pay attention to foods you may be intolerant to. So that was kind of a, a mind-blowing one. I just read a recent study. This one's kind of cool. Um, and I, I guess there could be applications for health and wellness, where they did some studies on people with multiple personality disorder. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Are you familiar with that term? Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I haven't read the study, though. Okay, so this is, you know, when people literally believe they have different identities that live within them, and they can shift from identity to identity. Um, and, uh, you know, this is usually the result of, of severe trauma. Um, but they were studying people who, with, with multiple personality disorders, and they were putting them in these fMRI machines, which fMRI machines are MRI machines that are, are you know, looking at uh, brain patterns, if you will, or blood flow patterns in the brain so they can kind of figure out how the brain is working. But it's in real time, so you can literally watch it as it's happening, right? Really, really cool machines, and they've really revolutionized uh, science in a lot of different ways. So they'll put these people in these machines, and when these people will switch identities, they can literally see changes in brain patterns. Well, there was this fascinating case of this woman who had these two identities that were blind. So she would say that when 
and she's aware of these other identities but she when she would become these other identities and one of them was like a man or something like that right this older man who was literally blind and so when she would become this man who was blind the fmri machine would show that the part of the brain that processes vision was turned off so she, so she was literally blind because <laughs> because she believed that she was blind right so from a from a health and wellness standpoint well holy shit man that that just really proves that what you think what you truly think and what you truly believe becomes reality and i think sometimes in fitness we focus all of our efforts on the physical and we don't really focus much on the mindful or the mind or the psychological piece the the spiritual piece or the the mindful piece if you will which uh, you know i tell you what it's at least as important as the physical part if not more important than the physical part and i know we get caught up in the fact like especially in the hardcore fitness like muscle building fat loss like we don't even think about that right like oh that's all bullshit no it's not man and if you can work and train that part of your your total you know body as well because you know you can't separate the different parts of the body right you can't separate the mind from the body you can't separate the subjective from the objective it's absolutely impossible it's all one so focusing on that is or, or at least uh accepting that's a big part of the the process or a big part of the formula very very important if you really want to maximize you know results uh and progress in yourself and especially if you're a trainer in your clients have you have you ever read the book the placebo effect no 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 you yeah it's it's all all about that like I don't know if it re- used that study but it's basically talking about cancer patients that believed getting through it and they did um, but man I think for me meditation was kind of a paradigm shattering moment based on what you were just saying I think for a long time I just thought it was foo-foo and I just didn't buy into it or I didn't believe I had the time to actually sit down and meditate versus it's really that's an ass backwards way of thinking because it creates more time for you but I had some mentors that were like one after another, just dude, you got to meditate, dude, you got to meditate, you got to meditate. And I finally gave into it. And it was such a life changing moment for me. And I actually use it for fat loss clients now because it gets them to calm down and kind of relieve stress and practice self-awareness and being present. Um, And I'm pretty sure you had a pretty big, I don't know if I can say life changing moment, but you got into meditation fairly fairly recently um, in your life. And that changed a lot for you, right? It did. And one of the biggest things about just mindfulness practices in, in particular that uh, I that was kind of mind blowing for me. Before I got the pro the results of the mindfulness practices, I had to realize that like anything that I did, it was a practice. So what I mean by that is, if I've never worked out before, let's say I'm totally deconditioned beginner when it comes to resistance training. I have to do it for a while and I have to practice it consistently before I can get good at it. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm not going to go into the gym, try it once and then and then it would be it wouldn't be fair to judge it based off of one session or even a week or even a month. You know what I'm saying? It just right. wouldn't be fair because just like anything you have to you have to practice it and you have to learn to become good at it. Well, <laughs> mindfulness is no different. So I know a lot of fitness people are like, oh, yeah, I tried meditating and I, I couldn't do it and I don't enjoy it and it sucks. Well, you know, how long were you doing it for? How consistently were you doing it for? And how did you start doing it? You know, like, here's a great way to, to start mindfulness. Rather than saying, I'm going to start meditating, so I'm going to do one hour a day, three days a week, 
That's way too much if you've never done it before. You're going to hate it. Why not do five minutes every single day? Start with that. Just start with five minutes. Literally set your timer. Sit there and try to become as present as possible. There's a lot of different ways you could do this. One way is to focus on uh, how your body feels in particular parts of your body. So like, I may think to myself, like, how does the tip of my nose feel right now? And just focus on how the tip of my nose feels. And that just makes me present. Or, you know, breathing is a, that's another one. It's a common one, right? Like focus on breathing in, focus on breathing, just constantly focus on that for five minutes. There's lots of different ways to do it, but just practice five minutes every single day. You can do it while walking. You know, my girlfriend actually loves to do something called uh, uh, mindfulness walking or, where, or, or walking meditation where you're trying to walk as slow as you possibly can, um, which you have to focus on what you're doing in order to do that. So that's another way you can do it. But you have to practice and do it consistently and realize it's going to suck. You're probably not going to like it until you start to get good at it. But then when you start to get good at it is when you start to notice some of the benefits of it. And especially today, in today's world, it's more important than ever. Because if you look at your entire day, how much time do you really have by yourself where you're not doing something or distracted by something, right? How often does that happen? Probably never. Probably never. You're in the bathroom. You got your phone with you. If you're sitting down, you may be watching TV. You may be listening to something. If you're driving, you got the radio on or you got a podcast on or you're talking to somebody. You're at work. You're working. You know, you're, we're constantly being entertained or distracted. Uh, and I, I think part of that is because we don't like to uh, be with ourselves. I think being with ourselves means we have to be honest with ourselves sometimes. Uh, so just shut everything off for five to ten minutes and literally sit there and try and be present. Practice that regularly and uh, watch what comes up. You know, it's during those moments of quiet that some of your best ideas will come forth. 100% agree. And I think... I mean, actually, just like a lot of things you were talking about, like, I mean, if we consider practice and consistency and doing something over and over again, you begin to adapt to whatever stimulus you're trying to create. And that's something I really want to touch on with you, because if anybody listens to Mind Pump, which I think a lot of my listeners do, because I know that for a fact, because they're always talking about it in the Facebook group, but you guys mention adaptation so frequently in so many different realms of fitness and life and, and spirituality and all these different things. Can you give me like a def- your definition of adaptation, how important it is for training? Like what is that process really about and how do people need to, why do people need to focus on this more? That's the, that is the process. Adaptation is the change. The only reason why your body changes and your mind changes and your thought process changes, the only reason why anything changes is because you are adapting to uh, some kind of a stimulus or even a lack of stimulus is a stimulus. So I'll give you an example. If I lay down on the couch in a dark room and I don't move and that's all I do for, you know, a month, my body and my mind will try to adapt to that environment or that lack of stimulus. Okay. It'll just try, it'll adapt to it. Um, If you sit a particular way all the time, your body will try to adapt. If you exercise, your body will try to adapt. So as a trainer, understand that your job is to send the right signals to get that person's body to adapt and change in a favorable way. Now, we are limited uh, by our body's ability, by our body's adaptation ability. We don't have this infinite ability to adapt. Like if um, if I handle a rough object, 
um, I'll develop a callus because my body will try to adapt to be able to handle that rough object without, you know, getting any more damage. But if I handle a rough object too forcefully or too frequently, I'll overcome my body's ability to adapt and I'll start to bleed and cause problems. And if I keep that up, the damage will become so severe that I could potentially cause permanent damage. Well, the same is true with anything else we do, and especially with exercise. When you get a client, your goal is to apply the right amount of stimulus to get their body to change, but not to overcome their body's ability to adapt. And that that is very different from person to person. If you take someone, look, if I if I take somebody who who's lived in a basement for five years and hasn't seen the sun, their body is they're probably going to be very pale. And if I put them in the sun, the smallest amount of sun exposure is going to be enough of a stimulus to get their body to change. And their threshold for too much sun exposure is probably pretty low. And so they're not going to need much sun exposure. I'm going to put them in the sun for five minutes and take them out. And that was enough. You know, if I go 10 minutes, I may overcome their body's ability to adapt and, and they burn. Now, if I, if I consistently expose them to the sun with the right amount of stimulus, their body will adapt and adapt and adapt, and it's going to require a louder or more intense stimulus to create further adaptations. And so this is the approach with exercise. The idea is to literally give the minimum effective dose because anything over that only compromises the body's ability to adapt and many times will overcome it. But even if it doesn't overcome it, all you're doing is you're, you're, you're slowing down the process. You know what I'm saying? Like, if, if all my client needs is 15 minutes of exercise to set the wheels in motion for adaptation, then if I do 25 minutes of, of exercise, I have only, I've only affected their ability to adapt and I've only taken away resources or prolonged that process. I've done too much. So the perfect amount is the perfect amount. Too much is too much. Too little is too little. And too little is better than too much in, in, in the sense of always err, err on the side of too little because you can always add more. But if you add too much, you're in an uphill battle. Now we got to try to scale off and now we got to back up a little bit and sometimes that takes weeks uh, to reverse out of. But that's really all it is. It's just that's all I'm doing as a trainer is what kind of stimulus can I, can I apply to this particular individual client that's going to get their body to change? Where is that perfect sweet spot? And can I, can I stay in that perfect sweet spot as their body progresses and changes? Because that sweet pot, spot will change as their body changes. So how do you how do you go about varying progressive overload then? Because obviously you can't just keep at, like you can start at the minimum effective, but if you just add five pounds, add five pounds, <laughs> like I'd be benching a thousand pounds by now. That's right. So. I try to preach to a lot of people and like, you know, there's a lot of ways to progressively overload as long as you're changing the stimulus. But I think like, I would like to ask you, what is that sweet spot? Like how long before you need to switch things up? What kind of variations can you add in? Well, there's a lot of signals that we can read and look at uh, from a client. So easy one is strength. So that's super easy, right? But like you said, that doesn't happen forever. Otherwise, you know, I've been working out for, uh, you know, almost 30 years. I could, I could, I'd be able to bench press, you know, 8 million pounds by now. So, uh, Strength is one, but it's not limitless. Uh, endurance, conditioning, those are all good. Those also are not limit limitless. But you have things like mobility, energy, attitude, mental state. All of these things uh, can be measured. But there's also, ultimately, here's the deal. Ultimately, 
I want to be, yes, I want to deliver progress and results to my client, but I also want to create a state in which my clients start to exercise for the sake of exercising. Because if you identify with results only, you will eventually become disenfranchised because there's your body has a limited ability to uh, adapt to stimulus. Your body can't, you can't just keep building muscle. You can't just keep losing fat. You can't just keep improving performance. At some point, you're going to hit a limit. And if you identify solely with results, well, what the hell is going to keep that person from continuing? Why would they want to keep working out now that their body, you know, once you get to a certain point, like, you know, I'm almost 40 years old. I'm probably not going to be hitting PRs uh, for the rest of my life. I'm probably not going to hit, I'm probably not going to break the records I sent in my early 30s, you know, going into my 40s and 50s. So I, but for me, I work out for the sake of it because I enjoy it. I really enjoy working out. And I also use it as a way to, uh, I guess, augment my, my life, you know, to benefit my life in the sense that, let's say I'm going through something very stressful. You know, a few years ago, I went through a very stressful divorce, for example. At that time, I used exercise as a way to stay healthy during that stressful process. Uh, there may be times when I'm very motivated and feeling healthy, in which case I will work for strength and endurance. There may be times when I'm going to focus on mobility and have a good time with that. And there may be times when I'm just having fun moving and sweating and listening to music. And if you can get your client to that point where they made that kind of relationship with exercise, now you've got somebody who wants to do it uh, forever. But yeah, you got to look at all the signals. You know, I, I do this with clients with nutrition as well, especially when it comes to, to fat loss because everybody wants to lose weight or most people do. Is I'll, I'll, I'll have them identify other signals or markers of progress besides weight loss, like your skin, your hair, your digestion, your mood, your energy, um, your attitude around food. You know, uh, maybe before when you were stressed out, you, you would reach for snacks to make yourself feel better but now when you're stressed out you don't anymore well that's progress maybe you're finding that you're enjoying eating foods that are better for you and the foods that are not so good for you you don't enjoy them as much because you've started to identify and associate other things besides just the taste of the food well that's a pro that's progress and so it's it's there's looking at all of these things helping your client connect the dots helping your client identify all of these things so that they themselves can start to make these good relationships and create a lifelong, you know, good relationship it. with activity and, and nutrition. I love that, dude. We we call that biofeedback over here and, and basically the exact same thing. But I think it's if you can get your clients to correlate all these different benefits, I think they're going to be so much better off for the long run instead of just thinking about weight loss the whole time because that will just drive a person crazy. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I I love to use this example. I had a client years ago who – did not eat vegetables at all, hated vegetables, uh, knew they were healthy. And over the years of training her, you know, I, I, w I slowly convinced her to add in one small serving of broccoli. That was the only one she could barely tolerate. And so she would eat it and she'd kind of choke it down because she hated the taste. But I helped her identify other factors that or other things that that, that the broccoli was was giving her besides taste. So she started to identify that her digestion improved. Then she would identify like, oh, I'm sleeping better. It looks like my moods are better when I eat more vegetables. My skin is looking better. So she started making all these connections. Well, after doing this for a little while, 
she started to enjoy the eat the broccoli. She wanted to eat it. And by the way, this is not, you know, I'm not making this up. The food industry has been doing this for a long time. Like this is the food industry has been making associations with food for you for a long time to get you to eat those foods. And it's not just taste. It's not just flavor. Like you go to the movies, you crave popcorn. You go to a barbecue, you want a hot dog. Like the food industry's created these positive associations so that when you're doing particular things, you want particular foods. Well, you can do that yourself. And if you make these positive associations, you'll find that you might actually start to crave or want healthy foods. And if you start to make the other associations, the negative associations with food, like if you eat sugar, you might say, oh, I love the taste of sugar, but I also notice it makes me feel like shit, gives me poor digestion, and I get irritable. And if you become cognizant about that and start connecting that, you may start to find that you don't want sugar anymore. You simply don't want it. And how easy is it to eat healthy when you want to eat healthy? You know what I mean? Instead of trying to force yourself to eat healthy all the time. And I think as simple as that sounds, I think that's some of the best advice for all the coaches who are working with clients and they're trying to build good habits. Easily one of the most important things. But um, one thing I, I got to ask you, to because just because you guys are mind pumped, what is something or, or multiple things right now going on in the industry, whether that's fitness or nutrition, that is just pissing you off? It's just ridiculous. <laughs> oh, you want me to go <laughs> off, don't you? Um, <laughs> you know, we're going to see a big backlash soon uh, with all these mastermind groups that a lot of these uh, fitness influencers are creating. Now, there's nothing wrong with creating mastermind groups and having people pay for connections and influence and for learning. But like anything that starts to become big, you're started, you're seeing a lot of shitty ones or a lot of ones that aren't really delivering uh, promises. I mean, I know I know masterminds where people are paying fifteen thousand a year just to attend these meetings and get stuff that they're that they could get easily on their own or get no information that's really beneficial. Um, it reminds me of when multi-level marketing started to really take off, and so. Right now, it's right now it's okay, but it's going to start to become a bad bad word to say things like, "Join my mastermind, join my group, and you know, you know, pay me X amount thousands of dollars so we can teach you how to be successful or teach you how to be a better fitness influencer." You're going to start to see some of that backlash, and I can already start to, I can already see a little bit of it because I see people who are doing these things, and I, you know, I look at what the the information they're providing, and I'm like, "Gosh, man, that is not worth, you know, ten thousand dollars or whatever." Um, and it's, a. Uh, we'll see, you'll see, you'll see some of the backlash. You'll see some people start to get a little pissed off by it or, or it's going to start to right now. It's a big money maker. I predict in the next few years, it'll be a, a, a lot of people making a lot of money that way are going to start to lose a lot of money that way. I actually a hundred percent agree. I, I went to a mastermind, um, three, four years ago that changed my life. But what I associated with it, why it was so positive is because I left that mastermind with a mentor that actually held me accountable for the next year. And it really wasn't any tactic they gave me when I was there. It was the accountability of just taking action on a bunch of shit throughout the year that really provided all the benefit to me. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, like I said, there's some good ones that are out there, but you know, it's like online coaching. Like for the first, some of the first online coaches were probably very good, had lots of integrity but then all of a sudden, everybody's like, oh, cool, I can make money doing this. And you had, you know, figure competitors and physique competitors who didn't know a, didn't know shit about training other people or coaching other people. And it just exploded. And then you got this backlash where people are like, oh, online coaching? Yeah, it's a ripoff. They give you a, like a pre-printed routine and, and meal plans and they don't really help you or whatever. 
And so it just, you know, it just tends to happen. And I'm seeing it with Mastermind. And it may, part of the reason why it's exploding is it's become a formula to make money. It's like start a podcast, get a social media following. Then the way you make money is you get a thousand customers who pay you a thousand dollars, which is a million bucks. And the way you get people to pay a thousand dollars, you create these mastermind groups. And so it's starting to spread uh, wide and far. And a lot of these mastermind groups just teach you how to create more mastermind groups. Once I started seeing that, I was like, oh shit, here we go. Wait for the backlash. It's going to come. I think, I think a big issue with that is people want a formula. And I've heard you guys say it too before, like viral videos, people will try to recreate a viral video, but the whole reason it's viral is because you can't, there's no formula to it. Right. So I think, I think the same goes with that. Like somebody made a mastermind was very successful. It was probably great. And then a bunch of people try to replicate it. And it's just, that's just not how success works. Exactly. That's exactly. I mean, here's the deal. Bottom line is if you want to be successful, you have to provide real impactful value. That's it. That always that has always been true and that will always be true. You might be able to get away with, you know, bullshit or, you know, lack of integrity for a short period of time, but it won't last very long. And once once that your that 15 minutes is up, you won't you won't be able to get it back. You're not going to be able to get it back. So, real impactful value is always has been and always will be the most important aspect of being successful. 100% agree, man. Couldn't have said it better. I'm going to respect your time, man. I know we're passing an hour now. I could probably pick your brain for hours just asking random shit because I feel like you're an encyclopedia sometimes. But I got one more question for you. It's a personality question I like to do with a lot of my guests. The situation is this. You're sitting at a dinner table and you have three empty seats in front of you. You can choose anybody to be at that dinner table with you, alive or dead. Oh, shit. But they cannot be friends or family. And they can't Who's... be friends or family. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually excited for your answer on this because you read and study so much stuff. Yeah. You know, um, let's see here. I, Leonardo da Vinci, I think, would be fascinating to talk to. The, the, the original Renaissance man. Love it. Um, Milton Friedman is one of my uh, all-time inspirations. He was an economist. Uh, I'd love to sit down and talk with him. Just the way he communicated things was really, really fascinating. And, hmm, maybe, I'm trying to think here. You know, I think I would like to talk to Donald Trump, not because he's a somebody I look up to. I actually am not a fan of his at all. But I would like to talk to him about the current state of things. I always feel like when people get in that position that they're they see shit that all of us that none of us know about. So regardless of who the president is, I'd love to have the president sit in front of me where I can ask them point blank, like, all right, what the fuck's really going on? Tell us what's <laughs> happening. Tell us what's going on in the world. Like, I don't don't bullshit me because I feel like there's a lot of I'm, I, I love conspiracy theories, not because I believe in them. I just find them fascinating. But I do think that sometimes there's a kernel of truth. So it'd be cool to have like a, a sitting in president or maybe maybe even, a, the, you know, one of the uh, central banking, you know, leaders of the world, because I know that they have a lot of power. Just sit them down and be like, all right, what's the deal? What's really going on? Such an interesting table, man. I love it. Where can everybody find you before I let you go? Uh, my Instagram page is Mind Pump Sal, but of course you can find me on the podcast Mind Pump. Um, and we actually, we actually just start, we all, we're also offering all these free guides now. We've created all these uh, free guides like uh, how to do a hit program properly, train your legs, chest, arms, uh, like all these different types of guides. They're free. You can find those at mindpumpfree.com. 
All right, guys, that is a wrap. I hope you enjoyed the show today. A couple quick announcements before I let you go. First and foremost, I just want to encourage you to check out the products I have in the description. First one is the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is a very cheap guide to literally mastering your diet. That's why it's called the All-Inclusive Guide to Mastering Your Diet. It's going to teach you exactly what and how to manage your calories, your macros, your meal timing, your supplements, your micronutrients, literally everything you need to know about dieting and nutrition and how to change your body composition through nutrition is included in this book, not just to get your results, but to actually teach you how to get those results along the way. The next thing is going to be functional muscle, which is my first and right now my biggest product out there. This is the program that is based on years and years and years of functional training with tons of clients. So whether your goal is strength, fat loss, or muscle gain, you should be strength training towards these goals while prioritizing functional movement patterns to make sure that you are avoiding any injuries along the way. That's exactly what this program does, and it's great because it guides you through the process, it changes throughout the process, and it gives you demonstrations and explanations about everything you're doing so you never get confused and you always have a solution. You also get access into the Boom Boom Performance Podcast Forum, and that is the only way into the forum, and that's where you can ask me literally anything about anything, and I will help guide you through the process. Last thing I want to mention, guys, is if you could leave me a five-star rating and review, that would be fantastic because it literally is one of the biggest and best ways for me to grow in the iTunes charts. Oh, yeah, and real quick, if you're not subscribed, hit the damn subscribe button because I constantly bust out content for you guys, and I spent a lot of time and effort making sure that you guys can get better results for free by simply listening to this podcast. All right, guys, I'll catch you next time.